Hi, and welcome to Artscoping. I'm your host, Max Anderson. I do think that it's incumbent upon us to problematize how we interpret these collections, to discuss colonial rule and occupation, to discuss incidents of looting, the fact that certain objects were removed under inequitable conditions, because the truth is that the life stories, the provenance of many of these objects really are inextricable from imperialism, from colonialism, from racism. That's Dr. Victoria S. Reed, Sadler Curator for Provenance at the Museum of Fine Arts, Boston. Trained as an art historian specializing in medieval and Renaissance art, she's been working as a museum researcher since 1997 and has been at the MFA since 2003. She researches and documents the provenance of the MFA's encyclopedic collection, which includes nearly half a million objects. She also evaluates ownership claims, reviews future acquisitions, as well as incoming and outgoing loans, and helps develop provenance policy and standardize due diligence practices throughout the museum. She holds an MA and PhD in art history from Rutgers University. Welcome, Tori. Thank you so much for having me. I'm delighted to talk to you. Let me start with a very current topic about the ownership of art, and that's the rising anger about colonial-era statues and monuments in the U.S. and Europe. Many of these are being removed with a crane by authorities or with a rope by the crowd. I'm not asking for an MFA opinion. What are your personal thoughts about the present meaning of commemorations that haven't worn well as perspectives about history evolve and what should become of such objects? My personal opinion is that when a public monument is no longer serving the needs of its public, it's really run its course. I think as art historians, you and I have probably both seen and understood how public statues have been removed from their original locations. Um, we rarely study objects that are still in situ. Monuments are taken down, they're recontextualized, they're reinterpreted. That's been happening over and over again since antiquity. So I don't see the removal of these statues as in any way erasing history or erasing art history. The question then becomes what happens to these monuments that are taken down? You know, we can all probably think of statues that we were happy to see removed. And I wouldn't personally advocate for the destruction or, or desecration of these images. It's also true that some of the monuments that are coming down may not have great artistic merit or they may not necessarily belong museums. So whether they're going to be worth preserving and, and how is going to be a, probably considered on a case-by-case -case basis. What this is really a testament to is how powerful images can be and how, in some ways, how subjective an experience of an image can be, that there is no one single way to interpret a monument to George Washington, for example, or Thomas Jefferson, or, or the Shaw Memorial here in Boston, that, uh, that there's a range of experiences, and I wouldn't say that one is necessarily more valid than the other. One thing I haven't heard much comment on is that these are public monuments, but who owns them? Who has title to these statues and monuments that are being addressed today in the public arena? <laughs> that is a good question. And I think it might be a little outside the scope of my expertise, simply because I've not really studied public monuments. But I do think that if you erect a monument publicly, that it becomes a kind of community image. And so how appropriate it is that community is not just up to one person. There are a lot of different stakeholders. 
Turning to objects in museums, I think it's fair to generalize that many works from the Global South in European collections arrived there as a result of conquest, while most of such objects in the U.S. arrived through gift, bequest, and purchase. First to the European scene, what's changing there with regard to what's increasingly being identified as ill-gotten gains? 2018 was kind of a watershed year because two things happened then. First is that we saw the so-called SARS of law report. This was a report that was commissioned by Emmanuel Macron from two scholars regarding the fate of African works of art in French national museums. And the SARS of law report recommended the restitution of African works of art that were either taken as spoils of war, that were removed from their original locations during periods of colonial rule or occupation, or that were trafficked from their country of origin after independence. That really galvanized the conversation. The same year, the German National Museums issued guidelines regarding works of art that left not just African nations, but any nation that was under colonial rule. So these guidelines deal with so-called works of art from colonial contexts, whether they were removed during periods of colonialism outside of formal colonial rule, but under inequitable conditions, or works of art that so much as reflect colonialist thinking, such as racial stereotypes. And the German guidelines are a bit different from the SARS of law report in that they categorize objects for sort of heightened awareness. They don't necessarily mandate specific actions or restitution besides scrutiny, besides urging transparency, discussion, and educational initiatives. And there were so many global powers in Europe in the course of the 19th century, in particular Belgium, Austria, the Netherlands. Are these countries taking the same measures of reviewing their policies and programs as, say, France and Germany? I am not aware of any similar guidelines from those countries. That's not to say that they aren't attuned to these issues and working on them, only that they haven't issued guidelines that have circulated the way that the German and French papers have. In 1970, the United Nations convened through UNESCO an international gathering in Paris that led to a convention seeking to restrict the illicit trade in ancient artifacts and ethnological material. Do you think a new convention may be necessary to grapple with this freshly debated issue around colonial appropriation? Well, it's interesting because there hasn't been one central coordinated response to this issue in the way that there was when the topic of Nazi looted art came up in 1998 and there was the Washington Conference on Holocaust era assets where 44 nations came together. There really hasn't been the same kind of convening on this topic. So it seems a little bit slow to happen. That doesn't mean that it couldn't. How about within the United States? Where are the winds blowing here regarding ownership claims of objects originating in the global south? There's not really been a centralized response. American museums are different from European museums in that we are mostly private. European museums tend to be government-run. So we don't have legislation that tells us how to deal with our collections. We look instead to ethical guidelines issued by our governing institutions. So the American Alliance of Museums, the Association of Art Museum Directors, they typically issue guidelines on 
Nazi era looting on how to acquire antiquities. Uh, they have not yet issued guidelines on colonial era provenance. So as private museums, so far it has really been up to each individual institution and its discretion. But I think you're really wise to, to couch this as an issue affecting the global south in that it's really not just an African issue, which some people refer to it as, it really pertains to areas of the world that were under European colonial rule. And for example, the Museum of Fine Arts in Boston were an encyclopedic museum with collect works of art from all over the world. My job is to ensure that we are being consistent in how we research and how we document. So if we are considering issues of colonial era provenance in the works of art from African nations, we also need to be thinking consistently across departments about issues of colonialism in Asia, in Southeast Asia, and Oceania as well. We're not really able to retroactively change how we've considered these issues in the past, but we can make changes going forward, how we consider new acquisitions, what we think about putting into gallery displays and labels, and how we share information online. I realize I'm asking you to step out of your comfort zone because your real job is to undertake a complete survey of the facts and circumstances that led to an object's passage from maker to museum. Yes. And what I'm doing is certainly putting you in an uncomfortable position because I'm asking you to dwell on some of the larger issues that surround research. When you're evaluating the title of an object, surely you're subject to pressures that are external to pure research, the opinions of curators, of academics, of those in the media, and that must make your work all the more complicated. That is a good question. I mean, I think when we consider issues of provenance, we try to think about three things. We think about the law, which we don't really have a choice about whether or not we obey the law. We think about the ethical guidelines from places like the AAM and AAMD, and we consider our own collections policy. I think those guide us more than any one particular conversation that may be happening online or political conversations, but we can shape these things. We can shape, collectively, we can shape the ethical guidelines, and as an institution, we can shape our own collections policy. So we're not completely divorced from these bigger conversations, only that we have a way to take them into consideration and mold them into specific guidance. Possession is one thing, but many critics of museums want to go further. They want to decolonize museums in a general way, which means to rethink not only what they possess, but how they interpret and present objects and history. What are you thinking about this larger demand and how it might affect the field of provenance research? Well, I think provenance research, which just to be clear, is research into an object's movement and ownership history is going to be really critical in this process of decolonizing the museum. And what I have seen in my work researching and documenting provenance for the MFA, I found that, for example, the art market and museums sort of writ large have really traditionally treated objects from, to speak very broadly, non-Western cultures, very differently from works of art of European origin. So for example, we often see stolen African artifacts appear on the market at major auction houses, 
changing hands openly. And by that, I don't simply mean works of art that may lack provenance or works of art that were taken during periods of 19th century colonialism, but works of art known to have been taken during 20th century wars or works of art very recently trafficked across international borders. Works of art with a comparable provenance from European nations would never be sold publicly. So there's a huge discrepancy there. We haven't really seen African source nations pursue legal claims for these objects, but that doesn't mean that we as an institution don't have an obligation to uphold a uniform standard in our collecting practices. So for example, in 2014, the MFA received a large bequest of African and Oceanic works of art, among which were eight Nigerian antiquities that had been trafficked very recently. Some had false paperwork, some showed every sign of having been stolen. One was from the Oran Museum. One was from the Royal Palace of Benin. And there was no way we could take legal title to these objects, even if we wanted to. And we ended up sending them back to Nigeria. Other discrepancies that I see between how museums and the art trade consider European and, and non-European art then many museums begin tracing the documented provenance of many non-European works of art with their appearance on the Western art market or in the hands of a Western collector. Uh, now, in many cases, it's not known exactly how a work of art was removed from its place of origin, but in other cases, it is known. We know exactly when and how the Benin bronzes left what is now Nigeria, for example. So we should begin our documented provenance of these objects with their history in the kingdom of Benin. So I think these are some of the inequities that need to be addressed first and foremost. So where are the boundaries between pure research and interpretation? How do you work with your colleagues in sorting out who's responsible for what? I think that the two inform each other. I think it's very hard to separate those two subjects. I do think that it's incumbent upon us to problematize how we interpret these collections, to discuss colonial rule and occupation, to discuss incidents of looting, the fact that certain objects were removed under inequitable conditions. And we can do this through gallery labels, through our online records, through public talks. Because the truth is that the life stories, the provenance of many of these objects really are inextricable from imperialism, from colonialism, from racism. As long as they are in our possession, we have a responsibility to share as much information about their provenance as is known. There's always going to be disagreements about the ethics of collecting and display, but we have a standard to uphold and we would share the provenance of these objects just as we would with a Rubens painting or a Roman statue. And it sounds like a no-brainer, but the same level of documentation and information sharing hasn't been happened. It sounds a little bit like the role of a public editor at a newspaper rather than just a provenance researcher. <laughs> I don't know that I would say public editor, but I think that provenance research really, the provenance of the objects needs to be taken into consideration when we reinstall galleries, when we publish these objects, when we discuss these objects. So it needs to be a voice at the table. How did you get started in this world, Tori? By complete accident. I certainly never had plans to become a provenance researcher. I was finishing up my PhD in art history at Rutgers and a job opened at the Princeton University Art Museum. 
I was living within commuting distance and they wanted a curatorial assistant who could do provenance research among other things. There was really no field of provenance research at that time. I had done some provenance research as a graduate intern at the Metropolitan Museum of Art and I was very fortunate in that I got the job at Princeton and sort of hit the ground running and it has been a learning on the job process ever since. So that was, this is now 2020, that was 19 years ago. I was told at the time there was no future in provenance research and that turned out to be completely wrong. Yeah, and here we are. You're a provenance researcher full-time at one of the world's leading art museums. How many sister institutions have full-time provenance researchers? Only a handful. And in fact, a number of my colleagues have recently retired. So MoMA has a full-time provenance researcher. The Nelson Atkins has a full-time provenance researcher. Many provenance researchers at museums may be doing other things. They may be working as curators. They may be working as collections managers. What I think is unique about the MFA's position and what I think the institution should be most proud of is that there is a centralized provenance research position that really works across curatorial departments to ensure that we are being consistent and that one department isn't asking a different set of questions than another. Are there degree programs that train art historians to specialize in this field? Not in the United States that I am aware of. There are classes, there are courses. I teach some classes, but I do very much believe that this is difficult to teach in a classroom setting. Get your hands dirty, open up a curatorial file, see what questions are there, and learn the process experientially. And what are you looking for to start? Well, I would say it depends on the object. It depends on the questions that I want to answer, but you always have to begin with what you know. With any object that's in the museum collection, for example, we have certain data points. We usually know when and where we acquired it. We try to take the, the chain of ownership back. You know, where did the MFA acquire it? Where did that person get it? Where did that person get it? And before that and before that. But it's also really important to know the object itself. Is it unique? Has it been altered over time? Does it have a particularly identifiable subject or artist that's associated with it? Because you want to think about how it could have been described in old inventories or sales records, and also whether it would have been described in old sales records. Not everything has necessarily been copiously documented over a period of its life. Do you have a different point of departure for each culture that you're researching? Well, I say that I would break it down, not necessarily by cultural worlds, but by reliability of sources. So whenever you're researching provenance, you have more reliable sources, primary sources, where you're looking for records of ownership, where you're looking for documents, auction catalogs, dealer records, sales receipts, exhibition catalogs, material evidence on the object. By that, I mean marks of ownership labels, collector's marks and seals. Those tend to be the most reliable sources of provenance information. We then have secondary sources, secondary literature on collectors, collections, artists. We have personal recollections, anecdotal information that can be useful, but may need to be taken with a grain of salt. So I think these kinds of sources are going to be used across cultural lines across categories. Some objects are, of course, going to be better documented than others due to changes in taste, due to changes in how certain objects have been collected and valued over time. So 
as I was saying, not everything is going to have the same level of documentation that, for example, a Rembrandt self-portrait might have. You mentioned a grain of salt when looking at secondary sources. But as for primary sources, don't you need a block of salt? Because there must be a lot of forged documents that are put in place in an object's history. Yes. So I mentioned the Nigerian antiquities, for example. They came with false paperwork, many of them. There are many documents, particularly in recent years, that have accompanied antiquities, archaeological materials that purport to be one thing, but when you dig a little bit deeper, you realize that they were probably fabricated and made to offer some legitimacy to the object's paper trail when there really is no documented history. So you have to be careful even when dealing with ostensible primary sources and think about where they came from, when they first appeared, how long it's been around, and who's providing it and why. Have forgers and middlemen become more sophisticated at faking documentation in recent years? I would imagine that they have. I would imagine that as participants in the art trade understand that we can no longer give anecdotal information as provenance. We can no longer say, this came from a Swiss private collection or this came from my grandmother's attic, that museums are beginning to demand greater documentation, that that documentation will appear in order to make an object sellable. So I think that many years ago, there was probably less false provenance paperwork that was appearing on the market simply because the ethical standards for collecting were much looser. As we've seen them, become more stringent, we are going to see more and more false paperwork accompany objects that in fact have no real history. The Nazi regime was thorough in documenting its looting and stealing of private and public collections. What are the latest developments in the restitution of works looted by the Nazis? Good question. So as I mentioned, I've been doing provenance research since 2001. And I can speak to general changes in the field. Back in 2001, around the turn of this century, we were very attuned to so-called red flag names, names of known Nazi art looters. We were attuned to gaps in the chain of ownership. We were particularly looking for works of art that had literally been plundered by Nazi forces. I think today, Collectively, we know much more as a field about not just Nazi loot, but about sales that took place under duress. So we pay close attention, not just to history of the object, who owned it and when, but also to the political and financial circumstances under which a, an object changed hands. We really have to broaden the scope of the research beyond simply art history really to more historical questions, and we have to change the kinds of questions that we ask. I don't know if that's necessarily a late-breaking development as much as it is a general change in how we consider these questions and how we consider what we are looking for. As the children of the original owners pass away, what are the prospects for the restitution of Nazi loot in the next 10 to 20 years? Well, I think that even as successive generations pass away, there are still going to be legal successors to those children and grandchildren. And we really are looking at the restitution of Nazi looted art as a legal issue. So the person who may be 
the rightful heir is not necessarily a family member. I think that we will almost always have a legal heir to some of these collectors. You're responsible for researching not only objects destined for the permanent collection or in the collection already, but also incoming loans. How much time do you devote to that? Well, I will say that we we certainly consider the provenance of all incoming loans. That includes large loan exhibitions, for example. So I can't honestly say that I spend the same amount of time reviewing every incoming loan that I would for something that we are taking title to. But if something has come into the building and it is going on the wall, we definitely do a provenance review. Dory, it's such a fascinating field. I'm curious if a young person is listening and they're impelled in the direction of learning how to be a provenance researcher, what advice and suggestions would you give them? My suggestions to people are always to get an art history degree, a traditional academic art history degree, because museums are still very traditional places. You need to have the art historical foundation in order to grapple with a lot of these questions. And I would certainly recommend any internship, paid work, any kind of hands-on work in a museum that is possible where you can start going through curatorial object files and begin considering these questions. There aren't a lot of internship and training opportunities, but there are some. So I think that getting that hands-on experience is really the best way forward. From what you've said, it sounds like there are more opportunities to learn in this field overseas than there are in the United States. Is that true? I think that European nations have allocated resources for their museums, particularly in places like Germany, to hire provenance researchers. We haven't necessarily seen the same allocation of funds here in the United States. The jobs are are few and far between. Well, let's hope that the combination of a new awakening of interest in the ethical comportment of museums is going to drive more to create positions of the sort that you occupy and make opportunities for younger people to get into this field. And with that, thank you so much for making time for us today, Tori. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure. We've been speaking today with Dr. Victoria S. Reed, Sadler Curator for Provenance at the Museum of Fine Arts, Boston. Until next time, this is Max Anderson of Artscoping. If you liked what you heard, feel free to follow the show at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Leave a rating and review at Apple Podcasts if you care to, which helps other listeners find their way to us.